be in Psalm 10. Before we read that, I'll have to explain a little bit. I'm actually going to read through Psalm 9 and 10, but we'll just focus on 10. Reason being is uh, until, for some reason, until the Reformation, Psalm 9 and 10 were one psalm, uh, considered one psalm. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, about 100 years B.C., so it would have been well used and known to Paul and Jesus. Um, that in the Septuagint, it was one psalm as well. Psalm 9 and 10 were just combined into one. That's so important because they actually form an acrostic, which is that every stanza or paragraph starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It would be like if you wrote one paragraph and the first letter of that paragraph started with A, second one B, third one C, D, all the way through. And that goes through Psalm 9 and 10. So kind of linking those uh, so we know that this would be connected as a Psalm of David. So I'm going to read through 9 and 10, uh, but really just focus on uh, 10. And you can kind of even as I read through them, see how deeply they are connected. And there's hooks from Psalm 9 that kind of hook into Psalm 10. And vice versa, there's a few thoughts that get brought up in Psalm 9 that don't get their resolution until Psalm 10, because they're really supposed to be one psalm. And even if there's not, the huge number, you know, 30-point font 9 and 10 wasn't there anyway until a few hundred years ago. So either way, uh, it would have just read through. There was no superscript saying, why do you hide yourself giving titles to the different psalms? So I'll read through those. So Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of ruin. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation." The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made, and the net that they hid their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God, for the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, 
There is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all my generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor then he, when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But, why, but you do see, you, you, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find no more. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from the land, O Lord. You do hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So hopefully you can see the connected theme, Psalm 9 ends saying, Arise, O Lord, show these people that they're just men. And then toward the end of Psalm 10, again, he says, Arise, O Lord, do what you said you were going to do all along. But this, we did, we did Psalm 8 last time I preached, and this is 9 and 10. And I, and I know that might be new to many peoples to read the Psalms in that way, because I, too, we are all guilty of sometimes treating them as kind of disconnected Psalms that have nothing to do with one another. And sometimes it does feel that way, and they can be read that way. Yet, the Psalms are actually kind of a poetic narrative. If you didn't know, there's actually five books of Psalms. We just collapse it all into one called the Psalms. But if you go look after Psalm 41, it'll say book two. There's actually five books within Psalms because it's kind of supposed to mimic the five books of Moses and the Torah. So the five books of Psalms kind of form this introduction and conflict and rising action, climax, falling action and resolution where the Lord will restore. And it's actually really, really cool if you ever get time to just read through them over the course of a month or so. The, the kind of the climax or rising action is uh, the, the songs of ascents where they're approaching the throne of God into Jerusalem and uh, there's tradition of the Jewish people that said they would sing these as they ascended to Jerusalem, going to the temple for a holiday. And that was kind of the climax of the Psalms. It's really cool. And then the end is kind of the conclusion. All that to say, it's not crazy to think of Psalm 8, 9, and 10 as being deeply connected. We looked at Psalm 8 and probably the most, one of the most popular Psalms in the entire book. And we looked at what it really says about Humanity, what is man that you would be mindful and care for him, O Lord? You have set him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. It's this really, really high view of humanity. So much that David is in awe thinking, why do you pay attention to us at all? And he goes back to Genesis 1 saying, you have given us dominion over the world, over animals, to steward creation well. He's going back to the commands given to Adam and Eve to rule well. And then Psalm 9 takes this really dark turn. 
as Genesis 1 through 3 takes a really dark turn. So Psalm 9 takes a turn and says, but here are the effects of a wicked humanity. The oppressed are, uh, the oppressors crush the oppressed. The afflicted are in pain and they need the Lord to bring his judgment. So Psalm 9 is really asking God to judge the world. And in end saying, uh, do not let mankind prevail. Remind them that they are just men. And that's kind of how Psalm 10 ends as well. Show these men of the earth who they are, just men. And, it's this, uh, and then Psalm 10 turns from Psalm 9 to this strange grief. And I love Psalm 8 through 10 kind of as a mini narrative because it really shows the tension of living faithfully uh, for the Lord. You get to Psalm 8, 9, and 10, and it's this knowledge that mankind has been made to be glorious and honorable and then Psalm 9 is knowing that we've corrupted it and those who are unrepentant and have turned away from the Lord have incurred judgment on themselves and then Psalm 10 that we'll look at is this this anguish that how the Lord seems so slow in bringing judgment and isn't that the life of someone who's faithful is you know the Lord is going to bring judgment but it seems like he is so slow in bringing judgment but you don't want to accuse him of being slow to bring judgment or take his forbearance and misunderstand it as uh, passivity, as if God doesn't care. And that's the tension of Psalm 10. That's why I love those introductory words. Why do you stand so far away? And not only why do you feel distant, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And I know many of you with more gray hairs than me have felt that at one point in your life. Why do you feel so far away from us? And I know you may be Scared to ever dare accuse the Lord of such a thing, but the psalmist will say the words that we may be scared to say. Why do you feel so far away from us sometimes? And he'll explore why that is and why we feel that way. The way Psalm 10 is kind of structured, and this is kind of helpful for when you're reading the Psalms on your own. And this is how my mind works when I first read a Psalm to kind of study it to teach or preach it, is it kind of just feels like a series of disconnected statements and lines that have nothing to do with each other. And you have to keep reading it and rereading it and finding common repeated words or phrases or ideas until it goes from a series of disconnected words and statements to a cohesive poem that actually does make sense and does have meaning and structure. So Psalm 10 in verses 1 through 11, we get the fourfold boast of the wicked. The psalmist is writing about this wicked man, we don't know who he is, kind of just a personification of all wickedness. And he gives these four boasts that the wicked man makes. One of them, there is no God in this wicked man. It's his boast. And then through 12 through 18, we get the psalmist's laments, pleading with the Lord to come and bring judgment and his response to the wicked man's boast. And then we get a conclusion from 13 to the end. And then he says, there's a, that great but we know that dot, 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 we'll look at. He says, but, and this is his conclusion, what he's resolved after examining the boast of the wicked. That first boast of the wicked is right there, starting in verse three. It says, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God So the first boast of the wicked is kind of the boast that will be the foundation for the rest of the boast. The first one is there is no God. Now, that is not saying that he's an atheist. And I know that's weird because it says, well, there's no God. That idea of someone being an atheist, not believing in any higher being, that is not until the 16th century that that will ever be a category that exists. 
But in the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, maybe Job, that idea of there is no God, in quotes, that's not saying that someone doesn't believe in God. It's saying they live as if there is no God. So it's God poking fun at the way someone lives. So it's not that this wicked man is an atheist and believes, oh, well, he's not just a Darwinian naturalist and he's going around getting in debates about evolution. No, the point is, he lives as if there is no God. And that is the foundation for all the wicked man's boast. There is no God. Now, we know the wicked man in this psalm believes there's a God because he'll keep talking about God as if he exists later. Because later he'll say, well, God has hidden his face. He won't judge me. He believes there's a God, but he lives as if there is none. So that's actually a broader category than just being uh, an atheist. He's functionally an atheist, which is quite scary to me because the scope of people that that category could apply to is a lot broader than just people who might be a self-proclaimed atheist in the 21st century, which there are many of those, but that is a recent phenomenon that's only begun to take place in these past few hundred years. So the person who might, quote, say, there is no God, might be people who pack into churches every Sunday morning. Oh, they would never say they're not, they would never say there is no God, but they live as if there is no God. And that's why it says, he says in his mind, there is no God. He would never say that out loud. Oh, come on. He's, he's probably this righteous, this wicked man might be a nice, decent southerner. He would never say there is no God, but he lives as if there is one. So the psalmist writes, in his mind, in his heart, I know that he says there is no God. Because to, in, in the wisdom literature, to live a life unchanged by the grace of God is as if you don't believe in God at all, even if you say you do. Does that make sense? It's a functional atheism, not an actual atheism. It's to live as if you don't believe there's a God. And that's scary because God will not be fooled, but we can be fooled. We, we might say, well, of course I believe in a God. I'm not Muslim and I'm not Buddhist or Hindu. Of course I believe in God. But to live a life unchanged by God's grace is to live as if you don't believe in God at all. That's scary because we're human and we're so susceptible to being fooled. We can even fool ourselves. Yet God will not be fooled as we'll look at in the rest of this psalm. And there, in, in verse five, there's a, a haunting line to me that comes right after there is no God. He says, his way, talking about the, the wicked man, his ways prosper at all times. You'd think that, I would, I would hope it would say, this man lives as if there is no God and his life is just in ruins and it goes to nothingness and it just crashes and burns, but it doesn't. It says he lives as if there is no God, uh, but his ways prosper at all times. Now, if I were writing this Psalm, I'd write it differently. Thank God I'm not writing this psalm, and David is. In wisdom literature, this is another recurring motif. Why do the wicked prosper? That'll be common throughout the Proverbs. Why is it that the wicked in their unrighteous ways get all the prosperity while God's people seem to be afflicted and oppressed? Why is that? And that question isn't perfectly resolved Hence, Psalm 10, him dealing with the tension of this life where it seems to be that prosperity goes to the unrighteous while the righteous are left in their oppression and affliction. And I wish it said that the lives of the wicked turn to ruin because of their wicked ways and they refuse to turn to the Lord, but it doesn't. The wicked are prosperous at all times. Quite an exhaustive statement. <laughs> 
And it, and it can be even harder. It can be harder in this situation as a believer because you know that God has allowed that person to become prosperous in spite of their wickedness. But the wicked person might say, well, I made all this possible. But it's even harder on you because you know God allowed that. Why, God? Why would you allow them to continue to go on in their prosperity? And you know that God can stop it whenever he wants, but he doesn't. He allows the wicked to prosper. That's different than how I might normally teach on a life of unrighteousness or life of wickedness. Because if I'm trying to steer someone away from a life of wickedness, I might say something like, no, don't do it. You'll regret it. No, don't live a life like that. You'll lose all your friends. You'll crash and burn. Oh, you see, they just look like they're having fun. They're really not having any fun at all. They're faking it. Or that's just a disaster of a life waiting to happen. Now, some of that might be true. If you live a life of wickedness, your life might be a disaster waiting to happen. Yet the psalmist isn't seeing that. He's seeing, or the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's seeing these wicked people prosper in all that they do in living in this tension of why. Why don't their lives crash and burn like we wish they would? These things aren't always true. Sometimes the wicked do prosper. So (laughs) call me a prosperity preacher if you want. I am telling you, you can prosper and might prosper if you live a life of unrighteousness and wickedness. And that's exactly what Satan offered to Christ. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and says, you can have all of these if you just bow down to me. You don't even have to go to the cross. You can avoid the cross and suffering and have all the kingdoms of the world or you can choose the opposite and go suffer and die on a cross. And that's exactly what Satan offered Christ. And Christ even himself saw that it was better to go to a life of suffering and faithfulness in the cross than take all the kingdoms of the world in a life of unrighteousness. And, G- and Jesus' teaching alone is anti-prosperity in a sense. You don't take up your cross and follow him because you think it's going to bring you a lot of money. When Jesus says, if anyone takes your goods, do not demand them back from them. He doesn't say that because it's a good business practice. That's a horrible way to do business, but that's God's way of doing business. And I don't know why, but that's why we have Psalm 10. You live in that tension of why does it seem to be more prosperous to be unrighteous than righteous? (laughs) You asked about Israel. I had a friend I met in Israel. He's Danish. And he told me about the Danish-run state church which is Lutheran. It's the Lutheran state church, meaning if you are a priest in the Lutheran church, you are employed by the state. Now, you might get a ton of money from the state by being a Lutheran priest in Denmark. I don't know why they give so much money to state-run priests, but they do. Yet, to become a priest of the Lutheran church in Denmark, you have to affirm sinful lifestyles and essentially deny the gospel altogether. It's basically one giant social club with church on the name of it but you get a lot of money for it. And I talked to my friend from, well, from Denmark, but in Israel, and he just kind of told me through broken English how he's like, yeah, I had that option, but I think that's nonsense because I believe in the gospel and I believe what God says. I believe in the Bible. So he's just like, yeah, and he just bluntly told me, I turned away from an opportunity to get lots of money and I chose to be part of the independent church, meaning independent from the state-run church, which there is not a lot of money in that, kind of similar to here. You're on a minister's salary. 
And it was so interesting to see something laid before someone so clearly to choose between will I do what is wicked and prosperous or righteous and not prosperous. And he was so resolved in his mind to not do what was wicked because he loved the Lord more than anything the Denmark State Church had to offer him. And I'm sure at times he's lived in this tension of why do the wicked prosper? Maybe when something goes poorly in his church, he thinks, why in our church do these things happen? Whereas in the wicked state-run church affirming of sinful lifestyles, why do they prosper? Why do they get all the money? But here on this side, we suffer. And hence, that's Psalm 10, living in that tension. And I'll, I'll spoil it for you. You don't really get an answer. The answer is God is God. That's the answer in Job. When he questions God, his answer is because I'm God and you're not God. And it's okay to question God as long as you're okay with God's answers, which sometimes aren't the answers we want to hear, but are still God's answers. So if we, brothers and sisters, are in Christ, we have committed to a life of being okay with seeing others prosper in lives of unrighteousness while we take up our cross and follow Christ. And that is what it means to be a disciple, being okay with putting our hand to the plow and not looking back. And... We must truly believe that in Christ we have absolutely everything, whereas those without Christ might appear to have everything, but they have nothing. We value Christ above all else. The second boast of the wicked is in verse 6. Now, his, his godless prosperity has led to what it often leads to, pride. When you, when you prosper in life from a worldly perspective, apart from the blessing of God, it leads to pride, like Nebuchadnezzar. He looks out over Babylon and says, oh, I made this great and glorious city myself. Apart from God, I did this. So the wicked man in verse six, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. So this man who is, lives as if there is no God actually has a God. It's himself. I don't think there's really a way to live as if you don't believe in a God. I think that's nonsense. We were not wired or created to live without a God, although it may not be the God of the Bible. You will put some God on the throne, and as is so often of the, so, so common in the human condition, you take the Lord off the throne and he says, I shall not be moved. I will never meet, all, I will never meet adversity throughout all generations. He's made himself to be God. I shall not be moved is something that's said of the Lord. The Lord is unmovable. But he says, no, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, he thinks he knows the future like he's God. He can say what will happen throughout all generations. He thinks that he will prosper forever because nothing bad has ever happened to him yet. And that is so telling of the unrighteous in this psalm. The proud have no need for the Lord. It's a, it's a deceptive sin to fall into, pride, because it's impossible to get out of apart from the Lord, as all sins. But this pride, especially so, the sin of Satan, the sin of Adam and Eve, it's to take the Lord off his throne and put yourself on it. Who is there to help you when you're on the throne? No one is above you. You're above and beyond help. It's this especially dangerous and chaotic sin that spirals out, just like Nebuchadnezzar looking over Babylon, saying, I made this. The next lines is, it says he did not even finish what he was saying. And God said, okay, since you're God, you're going to go eat grass like an animal. 
and he grows hair like the birds of a feather and, and fingernails like talons. He says, you want to act like you're God, I'll show you who you are, you're nothing. But his, that pride is so delusional. And then the third boasts, he, he, so he denies God, he makes himself to be God, then he naturally does in verse 11. He says, God has forgotten, he has hidden this face, he will never see it. So he then belittles God. He's so, he's so prideful. He's made himself so big and God so small. He thinks God is no longer omniscient. He thinks God can't see what he does. Or if he does, he's a long way off and doesn't care. He's a little baby God really far away. He doesn't care what we do. He's hidden his face from us. He, he thinks God is so tiny and himself so big. He's talked himself into a delusion. He thinks God is some distant man in the sky who does not care what we do and is unconcerned with our behavior. And scarily enough, so many today think the same thing, right? God has forgotten. He thinks God can forget something. And what, a, what evidence of the human condition that we might think, oh, well, that sin, you know, that was so far. It was 30 years ago, right? I've forgotten it. They've gotten over it. And we can delude ourselves into thinking God has forgotten or gotten over it. Just like this man. What's so long ago? God's forgotten. And how many people live like that today? Well, that was so long ago. As if you'll get to the end of your life and face God. And God goes, yeah, I mean, it was bad. But it was a really long time ago. But that's delusional. It's thinking that you're God and thinking that you make the rules for how sin and righteousness works. So his final post. And then we'll look at the, the psalmist. Verse 13. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? So now this is, this is spiraled from saying there is no God, putting himself on the throne, denying God's power. Now he's just wagging his finger at God, saying, you're not going to do anything. I mean, what a delusional, prideful man this wicked person is. He thinks he has full reign to do absolutely whatever he wants because he points his finger at God and says, you aren't going to do anything. And that is, I think, the logical conclusion of a life that is unchanged by the grace of God. From that first boast, there is no God, it naturally flows into the fourth. Well, therefore, I can do whatever I want because you're not going to do anything if you're even up there or even exists. That's exactly the logical conclusion of thinking or living as if there is no God. So I want you to see this. This is kind of how this psalm is structured and beautifully comes together. What is so strange about these four boasts of the wicked is they are met with four laments of the psalmist. Let's just say David, of the psalmist, of the, the righteous person writing, who's sensitive to the needs of others and who cares about the poor and afflicted and wants to see them vindicated. So all four boasts are met with four pretty similar, oddly similar laments. In verse four, the boast of the wicked, all his thoughts are, there is no God Where's God? He's nowhere near us. And the psalmist in verse one says, why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? So he's not saying there is no God, but he's looking around saying, where are you? Just like the wicked man is saying, there's no God. Look around. Where is he? So the psalmist is saying, in our time of trouble, why do you hide your face from us? So they're both saying, where's God? One with a different posture of the heart than the other, but they're both making pretty similar conclusions. Where is God? The second boast, the wicked man says, I shall not be moved or meet adversity in verse six. But right before in verse five, the psalmist says, his ways prosper at all times. 
So, so the wicked man says, I will never be moved or meet adversity. And the psalmist agrees. He laments and says, why do his ways not meet adversity? Why does he prosper at all times? He's actually saying the wicked man's right. Why is he unmoved and not meeting any adversity? The third boast in verse 11, the wicked man says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. The very next verse, arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the afflicted. So the psalmist, again, agrees with the wicked man. Why does it feel like you've forgotten? They use the same word. The, the, the wicked man says, oh, the Lord's forgotten. And the psalmist goes, Lord, why does it seem like you have forgotten? Why does this guy seem to be right? So again, a similar boast and laments. And finally, the fourth boast, the same thing, word for word. Verse 13, the wicked man says in his heart, you won't call me to account. And then the psalmist in verse 15 Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Please call his wickedness to account. He again is agreeing with the wicked man saying, why does it feel like you are not calling anyone to account? You're kind of just affirming what the wicked man already thinks. Why does it seem like the wicked man is right? Where is God? By the way, that breaking of the arm is not a literal breaking of the arm. It's, the arm is a metaphor for strength or power. God brought Israelites out of Egypt with an outstretched mighty arm. He defeated the arm of Pharaoh's forces. He's saying, crush the power of this wicked man, take away his seat of authority and call him to account. And then we get verse 14. But then this is the conclusion of the psalmist. But you do see, you do note mischief and difficulty that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you do hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and oppressed. So, You kind of ask yourself, what happened between verses 12 and 13? What happened? Did the psalmist mid-prayer just come to a, have a revelation from God? I don't think that's the case, but he's doing what is so often in the Psalms. He's holding firm to the promises that God has promised while in a sense evaluating and playing down his own feelings and perception. I think that's the fundamental difference between the wicked man and the psalm and this psalmist. The fundamental difference isn't that they're saying entirely different things. They're actually saying almost all four boasts saying the same things. But the difference is the perception of their feelings is being played out differently. The psalmist admits that it feels like God is far in times of trouble, but knows that can't be true. The wicked man is unconcerned with God's judgment, but the righteous man feels like God's judgment is far, but knows he is the judge who will come quickly. So they agree more than we might think at first, yet what they feel and perceive is different. Now, to the, to the, to the righteous psalmist, what he, the, the point is what he feels and perceives isn't ultimate, which is a miles apart than what the wicked man feels and perceives being ultimate. I, it seems like God is far off to the wicked man. Therefore, God must be very far off and I can do whatever I want. He won't call me to account. But the righteous man takes those feelings and perception and goes a different way. As is so often in the Psalms, the Psalms affirm, but also confront our feelings. 
It is okay to have feelings. Your feelings do matter. Maybe not to the degree the world says they matter, but your feelings do matter. I'm sorry if you grew up in some household where you were told your feelings are wrong and they don't matter. If you were told real men don't cry as if Jesus wasn't a real man and didn't cry, right? I'm sorry if you grew up, but the Psalms do for us maybe what some of your fathers didn't. They affirm that your feelings do matter, but God is not afraid to confront our feelings in the Psalms and that is what is so painful, So when grieving, it is okay, like Psalm 10, verse 1, to feel, why do you stand so far away, God? Words that maybe you'd be scared to ever let come come out of your mouth. You're not allowed to feel that way. You, (laughs) one of the most profound yet simple things I've ever heard at a funeral was Paul saying, it is okay to grieve. I don't think I've ever heard that at a funeral ever since then. It is okay to feel the feelings you feel and to grieve, yet the difference is the psalmist shows us to look past those feelings and perceptions and in faith take hold of what you know to be true of God. When it feels like God is far away, the psalmist shows us look past that feeling and say, but you are close to us. When it feels like God isn't taking care of the afflicted or oppressed, the psalmist says, look past that feeling and says, but you do care for the afflicted and oppressed in spite of what I perceive or feel. And I know that's utter blasphemy in a a I am what I feel culture, where my feelings are the ultimate expression of my truth, whatever that means, to say that you need to look past your feelings to what God says is true in our culture is blasphemy, but what the Psalms show us is real, true faithfulness. Look past our own immediate feelings. So, Lastly, and I love just the scope of the Bible because the, what the psalmist could have never dreamed of, we can look back in the past and know to be true. So through all these psalms of lament, there is one thing the psalmist could have never dreamed of or understood, even David himself looking forward into the blurry fog of the future. But we look back with clarity at the cross, the incarnation of God the Son, dying and rising from the dead. That's something David could have never dreamed of, but something we can hold as being firmly true. So while the psalmist says, why do you stand far away? We can look back and say, Lord, we know you took on flesh and drew near to us. We can never say again that you stand far away, even if we feel like it. How can we say God stands far away when he took on flesh and became human, became one of us? That's not standing far away. The psalmist might say, aren't you going to judge the wicked, Lord? Where is your judgment? And we can look back and knowing that Christ took the judgment of the wicked on himself. God is not slow to judge. He is patient. And he entered into the humanity and took upon judgment for himself. And the psalmist might say, Lord, aren't you going to do anything about our affliction and suffering? And we can look back and say, why is Christ joining us in our suffering, hanging on a cross? He is not clearly, is not distant from our suffering. So we know that Christ is the answer that this psalmist longed for all along. So when the Lord feels distant, look to the cross. When you feel like God is distant from your sufferings, look to the cross. When you feel like God is slow to pour out judgment on those who afflict others, look to the cross and his patience. Let's pray.